0: survey five characteristics of the modern self. Um, What I am doing here is channeling a bunch of these authors um, and kind of distilling some of their thoughts and trying to summarize them in ways that I think will be helpful. So some of these categories I'm directly borrowing from these authors. Some of them are my categories that I'm sort of laying on top of their thought. Um, But I want to talk about these five features of the modern self. And then as we do each one, I'm going to ask you to think together about What are the implications of this for Christian discipleship? Um, And then what would the scriptures affirm about this, if anything? What would the scriptures critique about this, if anything? So we're kind of going to try to workshop what the Bible has to say about these ways of thinking about the self, all right? So on the board, you will see these five characteristics of the modern self that I want to talk about and I want us to think about. and We'll sort of work through each one. The first Uh, characteristic of the modern self, how we conceive of the self in the modern world, is that the modern self is a psychological self. To say it another way, an inward-looking self. Um, The key thinker here, this is a category given to us by Carl Truman, but he's summarizing the work of Philip Reef, who is a sociologist from the University of Pennsylvania, Uh, wrote a book in 1966 called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And here was his observation. He said traditional cultures um, directed the individual outward to find identity and meaning. So it was in communal activity in traditional cultures, that you found your true self, that you sort of figured out who am I and what should I be doing in the world and how do I make the influence in society that I should make in terms of who I am and what I'm gifted to do. You looked outward to answer those kinds of questions to the community around you and to the external world. Our culture, on the other hand, directs individuals inward to answer the question, who am I? What should I be doing in the world? What's my true identity? So we're prone to think that it is within yourself that you will find your true self. Rather than finding identity out here, we find identity by looking inward in a quest for personal psychological happiness. We, we find meaning by giving expression to our own feelings and desires. Um, you need to look no further to see how deeply this affects us than to your own social media feed. Most of what you are posting on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Snapchat, on TikTok, on whatever the new thing is, most of what you're posting there has to do with how you feel, what you think about something, an experience that you had, how your day is going, um, what you might give in response to, Uh, what's going on in the world, or a photograph that you took that was meaningful to you, what we're doing with these platforms is we're expressing our own subjectivity. We're talking about what we're experiencing and feeling and thinking and our experience of the world. Um, Here's a great example that shows the difference in this way of thinking about the self. Think about the concept of job satisfaction and how we think about job satisfaction. My great-grandfather, Alvold Kvalnes, emigrated here from Norway in 1906 and settled first in North Dakota and then in Saskatchewan, Canada. And if you were to ask my great-grandfather, Alvold, uh, if he was satisfied in his work, he would have said, there's food on the table and my kids have clothes on. So yes, I'm satisfied in my work. In other words, for my great-grandfather, the only category he had for job satisfaction related to how his vocation in the world provided for the needs of the people who depended on him. And perhaps beyond his own immediate family, he would have said, um, I'm providing for my neighbors. I helped uh, the neighbor next door harvest his field this year, and that felt satisfying. The, the satisfaction was felt in his external competence in the world and how that made life better for the people around him. If you ask someone in my church now, are you satisfied in your job? Rarely would you hear, yes, because I'm putting food on the table. You would hear people reflecting on, I don't know, I don't like my boss very well. I'm not sure what I'm doing is the best use of who I am. I'm not sure I'm reaching my full potential in the world, right? Those are the kinds of things that we tend to analyze to think about job satisfaction. Notice that every one of those is an interior category that relates to our own individual psychological sense of well-being and fulfillment and happiness, Um, never before has there been a generation like us that measures our jobs in terms of whether we are as happy as we could possibly be doing the work that we're doing. In old societies, it was just whatever whatever your father did is probably what you would do, right? Whatever your family, whatever trade your family was in was probably the thing you were going to do. That's just how life worked in a lot of the world. So how we think about job satisfaction is a great way of, of explaining what This psychological self looks like and feels like. Uh, Here's another example. Think about old European society the way you see it in um, Jane Austen novels or in shows like Downton Abbey. Um, In that world, your identity is greatly defined by the family you were born into, right? All of Jane Austen's books are about women trying to sort of break out of the mold that they live, that they are established in because of the family that they're born into and what that family's place in society is. Um, we no longer think that way about identity. We don't care at all what family we were born into or what our family's place is in society because we, on our own, can change our own destiny simply by our own individual choices. Um, so the idea of the inward-looking self versus the outward-looking self is a critical shift in how we conceive of ourselves. Um, Here's Jonathan Grant in his book Divine Sex applies this to how we think about sexuality. Here's what he says The very idea that our sexuality lies at the core of our personal identity, the very idea that our sexuality lies at the core of our personal identity is largely a 20th century innovation. Yet within a few generations, this view of human personhood has become for many the only conceivable way of thinking about our lives. So he's saying, think about that shift, the idea that our sexuality is at the core of personal identity, that is deeply connected to the sense that we conceive of ourselves in terms of our psychological, subjective, inward happiness. Um, Philip Reif, um sort of surveys the history of the world according to four Archetypes. He talks about political man. That was the nature of what it meant to be a human being back in the days of Plato and Aristotle and the Greek and Roman world. You you were who you were because of your involvement in the civic life of society. Okay? Then there was religious man. And by that, he's thinking of the Middle Ages, uh, the time of Aquinas and Chaucer and people like that where um, the way you thought of your place in the world had to do with your religious observance and whether you lived um, in, a, in a place where there was a cathedral or a place where you visited to worship, your religious life played a large role. And of course, in the Middle Ages, it mattered greatly, whether you were in a Christian country or a Muslim country, uh, etc. Then he says there was economic man. This is more the heritage of the Enlightenment. Who you are in the world is thought of in terms of your uh, contribution to the economic flourishing of society. You are a producer who's able to contribute something economically. And he says the modern conception is psychological man. You are who you are. Your identity is found in how you think and feel and the things that are going on inside of you. So the modern self is a psychological self. We've turned inward and we now think of ourselves In terms of our psychology, in terms of the ways we intuit what's going on in the world and what's going on in ourselves. Um, I want you to turn in groups and for three minutes talk about this. What are some of the implications of this for Christian discipleship? How does the fact that the modern self is a psychological self, what implications might that have for our own lives as disciples of Jesus? and for the work of making disciples. Turn and talk about that a little bit and then we'll chop it up together for a few minutes. All right, let's talk a little bit as a whole room. Talk to me, what are some implications of this for Christian discipleship? If the self is conceived in terms that are psychological, what implications does that have for discipleship? So this psychological self creates a sort of tribalism where I am less prone to force myself to be in relationships that don't feel personally meaningful to me and that don't align with how I think and feel. That's really good. What else? Okay, good. So there's a lot of individual selves sharing the same space, um, but not a lot of true congruency to our relationships. Good. What else? Okay. Okay. Yes. Our, our judging of what is beneficial to us is filtered through psychological categories. So if it doesn't feel like this small group is meaningful to me, I probably think this small group sucks. Even if someone across the circle is being dramatically changed by God and profoundly good things are happening, if it's not meaningful to me, then it's not a good small group. Good. What else? All right. Let me ask a different question. Um, what would the Scriptures affirm about this view of the self? In other words, where is this in line with Scripture? What truth can we affirm here, if anything? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, so there is a, lo- a longing for beauty and aesthetic meaning that this does tap into. Um, Good. What else? Good. It is true that as human beings made in the image of God, there is an inward dimension to our being. Like think of Romans 7, right? Um, If I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Romans 7, Paul is wrestling through a certain kind of inwardness. He's looking within himself and saying, man, there's part of me that really delights in the law of God, but I see this other thing waging war within me. This is in a sense, psychological, right? You could say that this vision of humanity, of personhood, has grounding in the Scriptures in a certain way, right? So there is, in fact, an inwardness that is an interiority that we possess that's foundational to Christian discipleship. We do need to pay attention to our inward being. The Scriptures command us to do that. Uh, What would the Scriptures critique, though, about this view of the self, especially as it is experienced in our modern world? Good. So there's this sense that though inwardness is a feature of Christian discipleship, um, it is not the case that we are entirely subjective beings. We are subjective beings grounded in an objective world made by God, right? And so there are ways in which the scriptures critiques this view of psychological self and says, hey, you are more than what you think, what you feel, what you identify as or identify with. There is an objectivity to who you are in the world. There are things about you that are, image as an image bearer of God, you bear in the world that doesn't matter how you feel about them, doesn't matter how you think about them, they are true of you regardless of whether you like them or not. Right? I am a descendant of Norwegian immigrants, whether I like that or not. That's a reality about who I am. So there are ways where the scriptures would critique the way the modern world invests itself in you are a psychological being. There's a certain kind of objectivity also that you bring into the world. So if you wanted to say it this way, the biblical view of the self is, um, has a sense of inwardness, but also a sense of givenness. There is a subjectivity, but also an objectivity. Uh, here's another interesting way this maps onto challenges of, of uh, discipleship in our day and age. Um, think about the way in our culture that subjective harm has become the gauge for whether someone has wronged me. You've made me feel something I don't want to feel, therefore you have objectively wronged me. If that hasn't played out in your missional community yet, it will. And you're going to have to have a conversation about, did I sin against you, or did you just feel a certain way? And listen, we both we all know that conversation can go both directions, right? Like there are times when actually you didn't sin against me, I just I don't like how I felt in response to what you said. There's other moments where it's like, no, actually that was sinful and we need to talk about it. But it's interesting that we live in a world suddenly where if you've created any sense of subjective um, discomfort for me, then you've objectively wronged me. And that's a place where the scriptures are going to have to go to work in our discipleship. Because God says, actually, you need to repent of sin and you also need to Restore relationships with people, right? But because I have created discomfort in you, may or may not mean that I've sinned against you and vice versa. So there are interesting implications this has for how we think about discipleship in the modern world.